welcome to All My Elite. This is Reza. And this is Tanuja. Welcome back to our second season. We've missed you so much. Please tell us you've missed us too. Please do. Please write to us. We've missed <laughs> you a lot. We're so glad to be back. And this season is going to be better and awesomer and more magical than ever. We have lots of exciting things planned for you this year. We actually have so many guests this season. I am extremely excited about it. Yes. And we're going to start this episode with very special guests. Exactly. We do need a drum roll for this because it's we're starting with murderers and crazy neighbors. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's not delay this any longer. Let's get our guests in. Very special guests, Nadine and Kia, and they're gonna we're gonna talk about their wonderful books, The Binding Room and The People Next Door. Oh, welcome Kia and Nadine. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you please introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Kia Abdullah. I'm an author and travel writer from London. I write crime fiction, usually with a court case at the centre, which asks the reader to decide who's guilty. Uh, my first book, Take It Back, was a Guardian and Telegraph thriller of the year. And my latest, Those People Next Door, is out in January. Uh, when I'm not writing novels, I'm usually travelling. I've been to 70 countries across seven continents, and that's why I'm skint. <laughs> So my name's Nadine Matheson and I'm also a crime fiction writer. I'm from London and I originally started out as a criminal solicitor. So I think this year I would have been a criminal solicitor for 17 years. And wow. my, I, I know, time flies, flies <laughs> so fast. Um, and my first crime fiction novel, The Jigsaw Man, was published, not, yeah. no, not last year now, 2021, well, was when it first came out. And it's done extremely well. And the second book in the series, The Binding Room, was released on paperback last week. And that's the second book in the Detective Inspector Henley series. And I wish I travelled as much as um, Kia. I really did. I, I just envy, envy her Instagram. I, oh. Yeah, we all do. It's OK. Well, Nadine and I know each other. So, Nadine, you can come with me on my next trip. I might have to. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll tag along. I'm right. Just travel the world. Yeah. Can we extend that, that invitation, please? I want to travel. <laughs> We're all going along. You're all welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I'm so excited. to. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. And also, this is the first episode for our second season. So that's really good. Thank you. I wanted a couple of questions in there and I don't know Nazine if, if you can answer this first one I'm not sure if your job allows you to I wanted to ask the both of you if you could get away with a crime you know without getting punished for it what crime would that be <laughs> oh I already know the answer to this but I don't know what that says about me she's already thought about it I love she it always, because I, I teach criminal law as well my students always <laughs> ask me like every course I teach I'm guaranteed I'll have a student ask me like what's the perfect crime I mean the crime I don't like getting my hands dirty so the crime I yeah. would commit would be it would have to be a really good but really big fraud so mm -hmm. get in once and then leave like no traces to me mm -hmm. I won't have a lot I've planned it I wouldn't have a lot of people involved it'd be a very very small group of people <laughs> um you know big cash target in and out and then I'm done so that's <laughs> that's my crime wow. like Ocean's 8 yeah I want something yeah a little bit flashy as well a little bit Ocean's 8 
that I that, that would be my so crime. Much. Yeah, but nothing. Yeah, I don't, I'm not doing no murders or anything. That's just too messy. <laughs> <laughs> That's just messy. I I don't know how, how people can even think about that in this day and age. I just keep telling everyone that I have a hair fall problem. They will find my DNA. Like that's not happening. <laughs> it's not because we don't want to. It's because it's sticky. Yeah, it's just it's just the hair fall issue. Once that's fixed, <laughs> the artist. I'm just a bit lazy. I'll just be like, I've got to go out and dig a hole for a body. It's like no, I haven't got any. I haven't got time for that. No. I haven't done my weights. Too much work. Too much work. Far too much work. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Oh God. Um. I'd probably. I. I. Unlike Nadine, I haven't thought about this very much. Um. But my background's actually in computer science. That's what I studied at university. So it'd probably be like a super hack or something. Um, But yeah, I'd probably shore up my bank balance. So it'd it'd probably be, you know, not a crime of passion, but a crime of finance, you know, just to bolster the bank balance a little bit. Smart. Yeah. Hack the systems. We're doing smart crimes. Yeah, I love that. Like, passion crimes are silly. You're going to get caught. Do smart crimes, make yourself rich, and then you can hire someone to get rid of your problems. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Rosa? Oh, um, I would do something to get a lot of money, but to get like an income that would get to me like, oh no, I know what I would do. I would hack Jeff Bezos' account because as you know, oh. I just like Amazon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and anything that can be done to like dismiss that man, would make me happy and there's loads of money like, yeah. there's so much money there oh no i, I know now i know now I'm, I'm going for elon musk that's what I'm getting rid of. not getting rid of because that just sounds very extreme but yeah i would hack yeah. him that's what i would do i've got hey, two you targets take back the con- twitter control i would maybe we should do like a crime syndicate where we target all the billionaires yes i'm, I'm so targeting the billionaires i'm taking back twitter that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mine is not as cool. I have like really bad ambitions. I literally thought I, I would break into every bookstore at night. Oh, that's no, no, that's not even ambitious. Like if I could get away with a crime, this is, this is what I come up with. <laughs> I have to say last year, I found a wad of notes on the, on the road, like on the street. And it, I'm, I'm talking about 50 pound notes, like heavy, bound by like a plastic thingy. And I, I just stood there staring at it for a while. It was it was kind of yeah. cold. I think this was like early December. And I just remember picking it up, looking at it. And I, my house was like five, 10 minutes away. And I couldn't, physically couldn't go into my house because I felt like that definitely would be stealing the cash if I take it with me somewhere. So I just stood there for 45 minutes trying to call the cops. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have have a picture of it. I just stood there. It was probably three months of my rent in there. And I was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And I was like this school kid and his mother passed by and they were like, you're lucky day. And I'm like, no. I don't want to, I, I, I was so lame. And I stood there for 45 minutes. I kept calling someone. Apparently the closest police station had closed down. How do police stations close down? Like I'd never heard of that. They do. Um, <laughs> and I was like, who do I call? It's not an emergency, but I don't want to wait here all, all the time. And then this woman came along. I just, I, I just kept thinking, you know, I would take the money, but cost of living crisis, it's probably someone's rent. See, that is yeah. the naivete of my mind because, 
somebody with rent issues wouldn't just drop that kind of money there. No, um, no. And, and then 45 minutes later, this like woman comes around. She's not speaking English well, but she's like looking at the road. Like she's like really looking like in the bins and everything. And I was like, what have you lost? And she's like, my pay. All that, all she could say was my pay. That's all the English oh. she could manage. And I was like, what? Like, tell me what. I'm not going to hand it to you otherwise. And then she tried to like, communicated with to me and i was like okay i've got your money and then i was like you have to tell me exactly what amount this is otherwise i won't be able to give it to you and she was close she was very very close and then she was like i have many such things like she tried to tell me that i have other bundle that's just like this because i went to the bank and i was like bitch you're rich aren't you oh <laughs> i know See, it's a catch 22. It is. It is cuz like now, now that I've given back her the money and she thanked me, but she couldn't even like fish out a 50 pound note for my services. I I was just like, should I just give it? And you stood there in the cold. <laughs> I stood in the cold for 45 minutes. And my partner was like, you should come up. It's fine. It's no it's you know, it's gone. Like would you expect your money to be there if you dropped it? And I was like, I wouldn't drop such an amount. Like I would ever. No. But yeah. And 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 people, my friends were like, you should have kept it. But I think the most I found was five pounds on a bus. This is not like the same thing. <laughs> I would take five pounds on a bus. That was a God-given five pounds. That's a lucky day. I wouldn't have to. I wouldn't have to debate my moral values on that one. Yeah. But this was like more than two grand, guys. This was a lot. Yeah. No. No. That's that's absolutely crazy, and that could like. Yeah. really hurt someone so i applaud you i don't know if i would have done the same that's two months of nursery mate don't yeah. play with them yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't know i feel like if i would have taken it i would have like blamed every bad thing happening to me as bad karma for taking that money yeah yeah it would have got into my head i think that's that's probably that's probably mm. why i didn't but also to this day some big part of me regrets not taking it home there yeah, always there be go. a part of you that regrets it i regret you yeah. not taking it yes <laughs> We could have gone to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would have bought a lot of books. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have a second question. Um, give me your worst story of like having the worst neighbor. Have you had oh. bad we've all had bad neighbors. Let's just let's just put it out there. No, see, I'm really lucky. My neighbors are really really nice. I have really nice neighbors. Like they look after my cat. They take my parcels and You know, we invite each other to round to our barbecues and things. So that's actually oh, lovely. Oh, that's lovely. I'm very lucky. I'm very very lucky. Did you have any like bla- bad flatmates at uni or there must have been someone? No, I I remember I had a tenant in my house and it, she wasn't no, she was bad. It was just it <laughs> it was so, she was really it sounds odd, but she was really heavy-footed. So whenever she walked through the house which is like I'm downstairs so whenever she walked upstairs it literally sounded like there was a herd of elephants like walking oh, from God. room to room to room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the worst thing you know I'll be sitting in my room in this room writing and I'm just hearing these loud footsteps and the thing is she was the smallest smallest thing so she was just she was sweet but yeah her presence was um <laughs> it was annoying it was frustrating and there was always hair everywhere she blocked the bath but that's another story but yeah um but other than that i said my neighbors i said my neighbors have been good i mean my funniest story is my cousin at uni her one of her um roommates she she stole the, she she took the block of cheese and took a bite out of the cheese and then put the cheese back in the fridge no and i 
was like, what? Who does that? Who does that? Wow. That's disgusting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it is disgusting. It's so disgusting. Kia, what about you? I've had, I've had a neighbour do sort of small level things like you know when you put your, put your bins out or you're recycling instead of put, putting the bin out in front of his garden or door he would come and put it in front of our door and you know mm. you always want to keep good relationships with your neighbors and so my husband and I would talk about this we're like well should we push it back and it was such a minor trivial thing but when you're living so close yeah. you know you're, you're literally living next door mm. to somebody these small things can magnify and so I said to him, well, you know, I would just push it back because it's just, it's not fair that when we come home, we have to walk past two bins. But we never did. We just left them in front of our house for oh. the three and a half years that we lived in that house. Um, but, but separately, I, about 10 years ago, I went through a divorce. You know, we don't want to get too deep, but, it, you know, it had an effect on my finances. So I moved into, you know, one of these houses that they split yeah. into about four different flats you know and, yeah. and technically it's actually one person's living space so I was living cheek by jowl next to this couple and at night you know they they were partiers let's put it that way um they would put on football really loudly I could hear them having sex I could just hear everything that they would ever do they were big smokers yeah and I lasted a month in that place and I remember talking to the landlord and I couldn't help myself I just started crying and blessing you know even though I was locked into a six-month contract. I think he realised yeah. that, you know, this was just affecting my mental health. And he said, okay, I'll, let, I'll release you no, from the contract. No way. You know, and people shouldn't really be living like that. But, you know, it's East London. Yeah. Um, you know, we take what we can get. And, oh, God, yeah, so they were probably my worst neighbours. Wow, that's... I mean, I'm so glad that he released you from the contract. Yeah. I've not heard of like, landlords being so generous. <laughs> I think, he, to be honest... I think he was scared that I was going to report him oh, you know, because course. I don't think he had planning permission for doing what he did. So I, I you know, I give him the benefit of the doubt, but it might have just been a very yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think for me, the worst I've had is actually I do have them, and they're not that bad. But it's a mother and two kids that I hear the most, and for some reason I don't know, but the mother and two kids they really hate each other's guts. They're really like. <laughs> pre-teens you know but they are screaming every time and I kind of get that when you have two like loud noisy kids maybe you kind of you're at the end of your tether but yeah. they scream like someone's died like other neighbors <laughs> come out and check that oh my god something's no. happened to these kids like we are very concerned and it's and when we come out we just find out no they did they're probably just broken a glass or something yeah. so uh they are the screamy kinds and w now we kind of go like oh yeah it's it's the neighbors <laughs> it's the kids <laughs> i think i had like a bad flatmate who like here's friendly neighbors out there had i could hear her entire life play out in front of me yeah. i think the walls were thin but also it's not like she bothered to keep it low <laughs> <laughs> she was fine it was a reality tv except it was my life <laughs> that's a pain i think my worst neighbors well as you know tanu like right now i have uh, a couple of neighbors upstairs that are students that have the same issue as your tenant nadine they have the heaviest steps in the wall so the whole oh. house trembles Ooh. but they walk around at the three o'clock in the morning that you're like what i mean i'm, I'm awake <gasps> because 
have a baby. But what are you doing at yeah. three o'clock in the morning walking around the house? And our downstairs neighbor has, I think it's five little dogs in her tiny house. So you have constant yipping and yapping, which is fun. Um, it's great. <laughs> But at the yeah. same time, I keep on thinking that when I was a student, we used to party every night and we used to like have lots of people over and be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. So I've been a nightmare neighbor. I think I can like give people a little bit of space and a little bit of... <laughs> yeah. I think I've been yeah. a good neighbor. I guess I have been a nightmare neighbor because people people do tell me that I'm heavy-footed and I don't know what to do about it. So I kind of understand the pains, but also like I don't... I'm, I'm also a small, short person. I don't know what, where the extra pound load comes from. Where does it come from? Honestly, it no used to amaze me. I'd sit there, I'd be like, it sounds like there's four people up there and it's just one little person. But even today I got out of bed and I was really excited to get out of bed today, this morning. And <laughs> as soon as I landed my feet, I was like, whoa, that's a ton. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the reason I ask these questions, of course, is because of our guest's new books. First of all, I've read both the books and I, I'm going to start with Kia. Kia, absolutely, I read it on Boxing Day, bloody hell. Bad decision because I could not, I could not. I had family all around me and I was like, nope, sorry, excuse me, Christmas is over. I'm, I need to like attend to this book. And I could not stop. <laughs> It's this gripping thriller where Salma with her husband and son moves into a new neighborhood and meets with your worst nightmare, the nightmare neighbors. And I, I, when I was reading this book, I was like, of course I knew it's going to be nightmare neighbors. You can see that on the blurb. I know things were going to get bad. I just didn't, I just didn't, I just completely underestimated how bad they were going to get. And I'm like turning chapters and I'm like, okay, that's, that's it. There's, there's going to be some action now because there's nothing worse than this and then here just ups the ante i'm like wow this this is gonna explode in my face like what is happening and i i remember the family was watching some tv show and they're like oh tanu like do you like this and do you want to eat something and i was like Shh, not now <laughs> I, just, I just i can't i'm stuck now dude i've started this it was about i should i shouldn't have started this on boxing day but now i have i have to see it through Things get, it's racially charged as well. It's a racially charged dispute with their neighbors. And it just gets worse and worse. And at one point, I was anxious about how bad is it going to get. It does get really bad. There's obviously that amazing twist here. Like, I can't believe. I like I knew there was going to be a twist. I had a completely different story in my mind. I don't think anybody reading the book can actually figure out who it is mm-hmm. once i read it i was like yeah that kind of also makes sense i see it but i could not have predicted that yeah so like it's like a gentle reminder that neighbors can be hell love thy neighbors but not these people <laughs> <laughs> absolutely loved reading this book i think it was the perfect read to like end my year with thank you and obviously i read the binding room rosa do you want to talk about that I do want to talk about it because it's exactly my kind of book. Like gory, but just the right amount of gory. So I'm comfortable and I can keep on reading with my eyes open. I actually read the first episode, the prologue to my partner. My partner is not a reader, but he likes this kind of thriller. So I read the first two pages and he was immediately like, can you just put it on my to be read list? Like just add it to my (laughs) pile because he's going to read it immediately. It's such a visceral thriller and he's so... 
it's such a page turner. As soon as I started it, like I couldn't stop reading because I wanted to know more of what was happening. We follow Henley and the serial crimes unit that they're investigating the death of a pastor and the discovery of a half dead body in their church. Uh, it touches on topics of mental health, racism at the, at the governmental level, organized religion, and just it has the right amount of gory, I said already. It's I, I just like when they're a little bit visceral. And I would have never guessed who who was the killer. I literally would have never guessed. And it kept me like wondering and wanting to know more. And all the characters are so well developed and so personable. I actually bought the Jigsaw killer uh, yesterday <laughs> because I really Yay! want to know more about <laughs> I really want to know more about Henley and I really want to like get to follow these people. I hope that there's a third book and I kind of think that there's a third book coming. There's a third book. There's a third book coming. Yay! End of, at the end of summer. Very happy. Thank you very much. I loved Henley. Like I felt, again, yeah, even with Binding Room, I wouldn't have guessed who it was. Like I just yeah. wouldn't have. But I love Stanford. I think he's a he's so cheeky. Oh. <laughs> he's so he's so like he just like has the right amount of like of funny like relatable lines there to like yeah. break the tension. I love them. Um, I th- there were a couple of common themes with both your books. You know, the most obvious one, well, for me at least, was well, there are two most obvious ones. I'll start with the first one. Both of your protagonists are strong women of color one i loved the characters but i just wanted to ask if this was a like a personable choice or like if it was deliberate or do you think that was like the most natural character for the book to go with i think for me it was just the most natural character natural person for me to pick i wouldn't have i mean being a black woman it wouldn't have even have occurred to me to have started writing a story not featuring a black woman in the lead so when I saw Henley when I immediately saw her in my head she she was a black woman but she was also a a woman because I've always felt with police officers especially working in criminal law I always felt that there's no way you can't work on a really really serious case and not in some way take that home with you and you can't have that not affect you personally and also have an impact on your family life and, you know, in addition to your work, you know, these people, this woman, she does have a life. They're, you know, there are things that shape us and build us and make us into the people that we are. So that was always in the front of my mind when I was coming up with um, with Henley. But mm-hmm. I, I knew from the beginning that she's got, she's got issues. I mean, we all got issues. No one's perfect. <laughs> um, but also she's a black woman. <laughs> none of, I wish we were, but none of us. We all got flaws. But she's got really bad ones. But she's also, you know, she's a woman navigating what's traditionally been a male-dominated and a white world. So she's had to make her mark there and also show that. And it sounds, I I hate saying, you know, show that she deserves to be there. But I think when you're a person of colour, you always have this added weight of, I have to justify my position as to why I'm here. So, yeah, to me, she was was always going to be a black woman. And she's someone who I've grown to like the more I write her. Because I'm always constantly finding new things out about her but also she doesn't take any rubbish at all i love that about her. <laughs> the salma and henley are badass and will not <laughs> take anything lying down and i feel like they were they were most they were surrounded by a couple of male characters who were like 
trying to keep the peace and like trying to like trying to trying to like keep it low and they're like nah mm-hmm. I'm not taking this no and I think I don't know what, I'm sure Kira will agree I think sometimes not like our you know maybe our parents and grandparents generation there might have been a tendency to you know not to rock the boat you know yeah. just to keep just to yeah. keep things moving because you know they've come to this new world where you know they say we're wanted but they didn't really want us and they made it quite you know I always say you know, British racism's a lot much more subtle than anywhere else, but it's it's there. So, you know, they had to navigate the world mm. a lot differently to how we have um, had to navigate yeah. it. Because I think we're more, more inclined to think, well, actually, no, for me, you know, I'm born here. I'm, I have a right, much right to be here as anyone else. So I'm not taking any nonsense <laughs> from anyone yeah. else. I told Tanu that I wanted to name this episode uh, Fuck Around and Find Out because I thought that it was... <laughs> They're characteristic of the main characters. <laughs> yeah. Like Nadine, I don't think I set out to write strong female characters. You know, I try to write women who are nuanced and authentic, you know, like the women that I know in real life. Uh, and, and it's funny, isn't it? Because if you ask me to name a weak woman in real life, I couldn't find one. You know, even the women that we've loved to hate in the past, like Margaret Thatcher or Theresa May, you know, no one could accuse them of being weak women. Um, weak women only tend to exist in fiction so really the strong female protagonists should be the norm just by writing women you should be writing strong women and I think that's true of Henley and I think that's true of Salman that's amazing we really fell in love with them they are both very fleshed out characters and we love that they have flaws but they are still very strong and very um, clear-headed let's call it like that we also wanted to know, uh, what was your inspiration for writing these particular stories? Uh, was it from your personal lives and jobs? Because, well, we know, Nadine, that you have a special connection, let's say, with the crime world. Yeah, I, I think with, um, I mean, people always ask me if um, like my books are based on real cases that I've worked on. And I'm like, no, <laughs> but they're, also, they're kind of like the bucket list of cases I would like to have worked on. So like with the Jigsaw Man, that was I involved serial killers, and I just thought, thought, always thought it would have been fascinating to represent a serial killer, but only because I'm I'm always trying to work out what motivates people. So you know, to sit yeah. there in a room and try and work out, you know, why they do the things they do. But I think the one thing I've realised with my job is that everyone's motivation is completely different, and sometimes I've sat, you know, I've worked on a case for a year, even two years, and I still don't know what's the true motivation behind their actions. So, I mean, that's the first reason. But with the binding room, I think it was a few years ago, I was doing a case in Isleworth Crown Court and there was a trial going on next door to me. And there was loads of defendants. Whenever you see like loads of movement, you're always naturally curious. Mm. And I asked the barrister what their case was about. And the family had basically, they tried to perform an exorcism on their family member. So they were up for manslaughter. And then I always find in in law, yeah, it was just bizarre. You're like, oh, my God. And I've always found in law that case offences kind of go in cycles. So then there was kind of a few cases of exorcisms. And you see them in the newspaper, people being accused, um, alleged of whether it's murder, manslaughter, grievous bodily harm, because they've tried to perform an exorcism. And in addition to that, my grandmother is a reverend. Well, she was a reverend. She died um, Three, three, just over three years ago. But she was a reverend. So we kind of grew up in her church and as well as me going mm. to Catholic school and church and all of that. So that religion's had a big impact in my life. But 
you know, I'd spoken to my grandmother before, never in her life <laughs> she had performed an exorcism on anyone, especially if you knew that they had mental health issues. So like for her, I knew that the next step would be, there's clearly some kind of mental health issue here. We need to get you help. Not perform an exorcism on you because we think you're possessed <laughs> by a demon. So it's always like a combination of things that get in my mind. I thought, okay, this will make, this will make a good story. So that's where the inspiration came from, from the binding room. Nice. Yeah, I know that you wrote this story because there was an incident in your personal life. Is that, is that where you got the inspiration to write the, the book from? Yeah, so, you know, you talked about the kind of racial undertones in the book, and that's a common thread through most of my work. You know, first and foremost, they're thrillers and page turners, but they also ask the reader to engage with some deeper issues. Um, the seed of those people next door came from my time in Yorkshire. So I'm a born and bred Londoner, but I moved to Yorkshire, a small town in Yorkshire, for three and a half years. And... I remember one day I got a little postcard through the through my letterbox saying, you know, there was going to be a street level sing along to celebrate the anniversary of VE Day, and there was a little um, you know union flag on a tiny little flagpole, and having you know been been brought up in East London, I've never experienced kind of flag waving patriotism before, and I felt a little bit uncomfortable, and I think it was partly because when I was young. I remember sticking up a St George's cross in my window during a World Cup match um, and my dad came home and he, I could see he was in a panic and he just ripped down the flag and said, don't ever do that again, we're going to get a brick through our window. And, you know, I was too young to really understand what, what was happening. Um, and even to this day, I don't know if his fear came from the fact that, you know, he was scared that we were going to get repercussions because we were claiming the flag as our own or if he just so strongly um, connected the St George's Cross to racism you know he was yeah. an immigrant from Bangladesh I remember late on in life my mum saying when they had to go and make a phone call because we'd got a bin through our door they would have to do it in groups of you know eight men because they were scared of getting attacked oh, wow. and growing up you know this part of their life yeah I, I just had no knowledge of and it's only as an adult that I recognize that and so I, I think when I got that flag through through my door you know it, it just kind of uh, reminded me of, of my childhood and and the kind of visceral reaction that my dad had had to the flag yeah and you know I, I had to join the sing-along in the end you know and it was all very awkward you know but it was fine and my neighbours were lovely, but I did wonder what would happen if, if I had refused and said, well, oh, wow. no, I'm not going to, you know, come and wave, wave this flag. Um, and that kind of planted the seed of the idea for those people next door, you know, because the kind of kickoff point is Salma's neighbour, Tom, uproots the anti-racist banner that her son put in the plant pot. And she, she sees this happen. But, you know, like so many of us, you know, Nadine said, you know, when our parents and our grandparents came... They wanted to assimilate, you know, they wanted to be quiet and they wanted to join in. And so using that same kind of sentiment, Salma decides to just take the banner inside. Um, but then she puts it in her window instead. And then the, the next morning she wakes up and finds her window smeared with paint. And that's kind of the kickoff point. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, like I said, you know, it's a, it's a page turner, but it does talk about some of those simmering tensions that, that we've seen, especially in the age of Brexit. Yeah. It's hard, you know, talking about, you know, the British flag and the St George's Cross. Because I remember, you know, going to school, I started secondary school in 
God, 1988. So we're talking, you know, very late 80s, early 90s, going through her secondary school experience. But that whole period of time, you associated the British flag and the St George's Cross with like the National Front and the BNP. So it's taken a long time, I think, for us, for black and Asian people to feel comfortable with saying yeah. we can we, we also have this this flag also belongs to us so because for years it was just associated with with racism i remember a friend of mine saying would you go into a pub that had the saint george's cross above it and my answer was no to this day it's still no and i think that says something quite powerful mm-hmm. doesn't yeah, it because it's yeah. an automatic thing in your head you won't even it's just i know it's, it's just it's, it's so built in it's so innate that it's always like a you would second guess it before making a final decision. You wouldn't just say, yes, I'll walk in. You'd be like, oh, can I? Should I? Is there a, is there a football event going on? Is there something to justify justify mm-hmm. you going in there? That is so true. I mean, I'm a, I've moved here from a different country and I, there are so many objects, let's say, that represent something else entirely objectively, but to mm. me appear sort of, problematic from my experiences and a flag may be just a country's flag for some people and for some people it's just so much more and you and here you have included that incident like when Mm -hmm. Salmari calls about her father that's the exact incident and that that does say a lot about her character development as well because Mm -hmm. she's of a new generation and she has learned to fight back I thought that was really brilliant to show yeah where she comes from and how that has shaped her as a person because that really is what like turns the story and this this really brings me to my next common point but with both of your books is the racial tensions that you portrayed and Nadine I'll start with you because you've written about like police officers who are people of color and it was really nuanced in the way that um, Henley is slighted by a politician uh, and almost sort of questioned like why as a black woman are you not investigating the death of a black man first yeah and that was just another insight into the systematic racism or racism in these powerful positions and organizations and how that that kind of flips you on your head uh, when you're when you're blamed for something like that, or when she thinks about what Serena tells her, you know, I wouldn't say what exactly because it's yeah, I know, yeah. book, but you you know what I mean as a black woman, how she feels when another black woman says that to her. Yeah, just made me think that you must have seen that in your day job, like firsthand. Yeah, it's two. It goes two extremes. On one extreme, you have the because I mean, I had it as. I say being a solicitor, being a black woman as a solicitor, I mean, there'd been, in the early days I'd go into court and there'd be an assumption by the clerk that I wasn't a solicitor. They would assume that I was either the, the client's girlfriend or a family member, or maybe I worked for probation or social services. But there's, it's an unconscious bias that in their head I couldn't be a solicitor. So that happened quite a few times in the early days. And obviously the more you progress through your career, it kind of, um, it kind of dissipates. But then... There'll be, I've seen it with black officers and Asian officers, that clients, also, or I'd say suspects, who'd been arrested, there would be this thing of, you know, how can you be working for them? Like, you're working for the other side. Like, you should be working 
for me and looking after our community. You're supposed to be one of us, but it's like there's a betrayal. So you'd see that extreme yeah. on the one hand. And then with the binding room, I think the task for, for Tenley was putting that cross that everyone has to be treated fairly. You can't just because she's a black woman doesn't mean that she automatically has to give much more dedicate more resources or spend most of her time investigating yeah. a black case you know the murder yeah. of a black man and the murder of a white man it deserves there needs to be parity you can't yeah. there can't be an unfairness and then with the binary rumors also you can see and it, I mean it happens now you can see how politicians they'll they'll take something up a cause yeah. and then they're using it yeah they don't really care but because yeah. it's popular at the time so I would say, like, if you go back to Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, that that's the rallying call of the moment. Oh, so we're going to adopt that for five minutes. But, you know, as soon as it mm. dies down, they'll move mm. on yeah. to something else. So, you know, it's all these things that we see. And I think because we've all been in, we was in lockdown for so long, everything just became, it's odd. Like, we were in a bubble, but everything became so much more magnified. Yeah. So, you know, these politicians' intentions and, you know, how the police do treat suspects and especially with, I think, the Jigsaw Man. And there was a point where one of the victim's mothers, grandmothers said, you know, you spent all your time putting your resources into investigating a white person. But when it came to my black granddaughter, we had to do it all ourselves. And then Mm -hmm. fast forward to now, you know, you see that visually played out. So it's not as if I had like a tick box of, these are the things I want to put in the book. But it's because it's just it just happens and it's just life and it's just how we see life. Yeah. It just naturally it will just go into the book because you know, I mean you're I think especially if you're writing crime fiction and thrillers, in a sense they have to represent life as we see it and as we experience it. But I know the scene you're talking about with Serena and Henley, even every time I wrote it, I was like, it burnt me. It burnt me because I know on one hand, it's said with anger, but on the other yeah. hand, also, it said there's a lot of hurt behind that. Yeah. So every time I wrote it and I was editing around it, I was like, oh, my God, this is just gonna just It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's mm. brutal to say it and to hear it. Yeah. Kia, you also have, like, a really racially charged dispute in your book. <clears throat> And this is even closer to home. This is like threatening your personal security. This is threatening the security of your family. Um, and and it is a classic, like, you know, page turner and you're figuring out who the person is. And But more than that, it's you have really put the nuance in there because not only you show the racial tensions when it comes to having, like, white neighbors, but at the same time, like Nadine said, like racism is so subtle in the UK. It's not very on your in your face kind of racism. It's it's so subtle, and people who who you've portrayed don't even like they don't believe they're racist. Nobody kind of does, you know. In, yeah. Where nobody will say yes, I am I'm a racist. Like they, they don't believe it, and it which makes it even more sort of layered. In the end, when Summer's tweets are read out, you know, I'm not gonna like go into detail, but you know what the part I'm talking about. Yes. There's a layer to that. It shows her prejudice in some ways. And then the entire book, it's her neighbor's prejudices against her family. How did you, you know, how did you write that? What what were you, what was the intention or what, what did you want the reader to take away when they read both the sides of personalities? For that? Sure. I mean, as you say, 
the book is in in a way about racial tension in modern Britain, but how do we know that tension between neighbours is indeed racial? How do you know it's not just clumsy wording or, um, you, you know, and I've been in a situation where I've said something, you know, Nadine and I have had this conversation before, actually, where people might assume that she's working class just because she's black. And I'm pretty sure that I've done that in my life, you know. Uh, But is that an act of racism? It's an act of ignorance, probably. But I wouldn't say it's an act of racism. And so, you know, there are so many grey areas when it comes to race, race relations. And I wanted to explore that. And I didn't want Salma to just be perfect, you know, and some of the tweets that are read out, you know, and I've seen tweets like this in real life from my friends who are women of colour. And, uh, you know, just to give the listener a flavour, things like, you know, white women's tears are lethal or, you know, white women are dangerous. And so when we're adopting rhetoric like that, are we any better than the the white woman who would say that about us you know and I wanted to explore that so it wasn't just you know to use upon black and white it it looked up some of those grey areas and even within their marriage you know so Salma and her husband Bill he's very much assimilated you know he he's one of those you know roll up your sleeves you know don't read too much into whatever someone's saying get on with life you know get your head down and work you know and he's not subservient he's just very positive actually and he's optimistic about the future of Britain and he sees it at the, as this green and pleasant land that we're all promised whereas Salma's a little bit more realistic you know and so seeing their different attitudes to what's happening with their neighbours is really interesting and so that was another layer and then then comes along Zane you know their son and I see this in my life you know some of the ways in which the third generation react to certain language and I think well you know it's not that big a deal, but but maybe it is, you know, but I'm so ingrained into into a certain way of thinking that they won't stand for it, but I will in the same way we won't stand for certain things that our parents did. And so there are just so many different threads happening in real life. And I wanted to reflect that in, in the book. Yeah, it was for me super nuanced, especially towards the end. I guess both your books, I would say, bring out that unconscious bias. Like you, rec- that the reader can recognize in themselves. Because I, I think that's that's life, and I think that's what Kia and I both. I know with Kia's books, like you read them, and she always has them. She normally gets a text from me, like, "What on earth was going <laughs> on?" Because she has these crazy, amazing twists in her books. But I think we both do the same thing. Is like you try and represent life, you know, yeah. and a true portrayal of life, especially being women of color. Um, writing these books I think also there's an I always always feel and I know I've said this like a million times I always feel there's an expectation if you're a woman of colour or just a person of colour writing a book that you should be writing a certain kind of book Mm -hmm. and the fact that we're writing what we're writing you know we're writing thrillers we're writing police procedurals there's there's a kind of like oh my god a surprise that we're actually writing these books and then talking about the world in which we grew up and and how and how we see it I mean, and because we're all we're all so different, and we all have so many different experiences. So you know, Kia grew up in East London, so her experience of life is with a East London lens. I grew up in South East London. My way of view of life is with a South East London lens, and so all of these um, experiences have an impact in our book, and also as I think, just make it show, give it more authenticity, and make it more real, and make people think, and actually ask questions. I, I want people to when they close the book to ask questions and just think about 
what's going on in the world around them. I, I have to pipe in and say that both your books like really made me think because I've lived in East London and South East London. <laughs> <laughs> One of the murders <laughs> takes like right outside my door. So <laughs> I love I love getting you I get them all the time and it just makes me laugh because I know they're not said with like fair, but the emails I get with, oh my god, um um in the first book, Jigsaw Man, <laughs> there's a crime scene in Lady Wellfields. In South East London, I had emails of like, I walk past those tennis courts all the time. And every time I think about the body being found there, and I'm like, that's so cool. It's funny, <laughs> but yeah, it's good. <laughs> I don't know if it's that cool for the people that send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool for me. <laughs> and funny, I like it. Like, I'm going to be walking by that today. I'm already imagining it. <laughs> What you're saying, Nadine, is so true. We were talking about it with Tano uh, when we were discussing about making this episode, that there's not... It, the thriller is not a genre that is well known for uh, having a lot of people of color. And we love being able to like get you on the show and like get more people reading your books because they are absolutely incredible and they should be read by everyone. But we are very happy that we, we got to review these books and we got to copies of them. So uh, we really appreciate that you wanted to come visit us <laughs> oh thank you thank you for having us see you <laughs> and what you were saying earlier about like having a flesh out life in um in a book i found it so beautiful like the way you treated mental health nadine and kia the way that you had a character that was also deaf and hard of hearing and you had had a disability and was part of the main plot introducing all of these things and having like a very still fleshed out kind of narrative it was it was gorgeous we had so much fun honestly thank you thank you so much sure Kia felt the same yeah I was gonna say I mean when you're dealing with and I, I said I was dealing with mental health issues yeah um so that you want even though you're, you're you know you're writing for you know I hate to say entertainment you are writing for that but you also still want to make sure you're respectful of these issues because they are they are serious issues and they, they impact everybody in some shape or form so yeah it's the way I feel, I know they say I always have a lot of gory scenes in my book, <laughs> but I always say I never want the violence to be, I never want it to be gratuitous. Like I always want there to be a point to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to, I hopefully I think carefully about, you know, where I place it and how I use it in the story. Yeah. Um, we also wanted to ask you, because you both are part of the publishing industry, um, how has it been the experience of writing books, getting an agent, getting published, uh, the pressers, the promotion? Have you been enjoying it? My, my whole thing, I've got my New Year's intention, my New Year's resolution. I want to be on a bus. <laughs> uh, that's all I want. I want to be, I want to see my book on the side of a bus. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> that's what I want. But Fine. going back to publishing, it's been, I had to get used to it. Because yeah. it's so completely different to the legal world in yeah. some respects. So it was kind of like I had to learn this whole new world and how it operated and how I fitted in the world. And I think the fantastic thing is that I've got a brilliant agent and brilliant editor at HQ, which made that navigation a lot easier. But then there were certain instances I had to kind of step back from being emotional about it and just be very like analytical put my lawyer hat on and look at how this works in stuff of you know how your books are promoted and how you know you may be seen by others within that publishing world and also you know how do you make your own mark in that publishing world if that's relying so much on maybe like your publishers and things like that it's like what can you do 
be yourself. Yeah. So the whole thing, it's, it's been a lesson and it continues to be a lesson. But then, you know, one of the biggest bonuses is that I've made, and it's not just saying it like in a, oh, I made friends. Like I made some really amazing friends like Kia. Kia's fantastic. Aww. And, you know, we, and it's good to have that support. So when you see each other at festivals or you end up doing podcasts together, you're like, oh my God, I'm with Kia. That's so good. I'm, like, I'm so happy <laughs> to Aww. be here because I met amazing, really amazing people on this that- journey. That's so adorable. What about you, Kia? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been amazing. I think I, what I always say is the biggest barrier for me to publication was finding an agent. You know, I spent ages try, trying to find an agent, queried so many in the UK, uh, couldn't find one in the UK, actually. But as soon as I went to the US, uh, three agents wanted my book. And, oh, wow. you know, that's another conversation about why that happened. But since then, you know, it's been it's been a bit of a whirlwind. You know, I've been writing one a year and those people next door is my fourth. I will be slowing down a little bit now. I'm going to be writing one every other year just because the pace is a bit much. But yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. As Nadine says, mm-hmm. you've got to remember what you can control. The bit that you can control is writing good books. Yeah. You know, whether you hit yeah. the top 10 Sunday Times bestseller list, you know, at least 100 other factors depend on whether that happens or not. And so... I, I always think, okay, well, as long as I carry on writing good books, you know, I'm doing my job. I agree. And I feel like I have to say, personally, both of your books were so cinematographic. I won't be like, I, I would want to watch this as a teleseries or like a movie. Like, I think so. I could picture it. I, I, I could picture the yeah. suspense and like, I could, I could picture the houses and the neighbors and I could picture mm-hmm. Henley. Like, I feel like this, these books have like great potential to be there and that that's like another exciting part Thank of the journey you. i hope you i hope you experience i hope so and i hope you know if for both of me and kia if our books get made into tv series or movies it's not just like we're just picking one person of color for the year oh, yeah. if yeah. you know what i mean it's like you can have all of us out all at the all at the same time sometimes i feel like oh we need to anoint someone this year and that's going to be the person we're going to promote yeah. but no absolutely all both of us on netflix yeah let us know when the miniseries drops like we are going to be there definitely <laughs> i had to ask this question and we do ask all the guests on our show this question while you were writing or you know just as for your comfort what the one book that you go back to what book would you recommend by another author of colour? One book that I always recommend is The Remains of the Day by um, Kazuo Ishiguro. Because, I mean, it, it's difficult because growing up, like pretty much all the books I read were by white writers, uh, authors of colour, and certainly British Asian authors were largely missing from the UK literary landscape, certainly in terms of children's publishing. But I think his book, you know, Remains of the Day, shows us what's possible in terms of character you know in terms of plot not a huge amount happens but it's the character that keeps you completely compelled and his work reminds me that you know even though I write crime which is notoriously plot driven I should never sacrifice character and so that's one book I would recommend. I love The Remains of the Day I love the book I love the film and I watched it again over um, Christmas and that book is completely battered if you see it on my shelf, I wouldn't bring it out because it's so battered. But um, I was just thinking, you know, what Kia was saying, like growing up, there wasn't that many, much as I loved crime fiction and I just love reading in general, like you had to hunt really hard to find a book by a person of colour yes. in your libraries yeah. or in the bo- or in the bookshops. And it's only when I got, it's only like I'd say like, like mid 90s and I'm, I'm going to say Terry McMillan who wrote Waiting to Exhale. And that was like the first time I'd seen 
a black female author. No, she's African-American, but just writing commercial fiction. It wasn't highbrow literary that you couldn't get your head around. It wasn't so-called like trauma-driven. It was just a story about four black women navigating their their love lives in their 30s. And it was commercial. Then it got made into a movie. And it's just, I think that's a book I would go to just say, you know, we are more than just what you assume we are yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'll say, Terry Macmillan. Oh, that's nice. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And what are your plans going forward? Uh, Nadine, you've told us that you have another book coming, uh, but is there something else that you would like I, to... I do. So I've got The Kill List, which is book three in, Henley, in the Henley series coming out end of August. Yeah, around the end of summer. I'm going to start book four. Wow. <laughs> in a couple okay. of months. <laughs> Great. I'm also Excited. I started I keep I keep talking about this legal yeah I keep talking about this legal thriller I started writing and I haven't finished it yet so my plan is to finish it by the end of by the end of February plan to finish that because I was trying to I was shying away from writing a legal thriller but then this character kind of popped into my head oh wow and this story so I thought oh let's just let's just see what happens with it so that's my plan would you and travel yeah. more <laughs> Could you give us a little teaser for book three? Is there anything you can share with? It's okay if you can't, but if, if there's anything, and I can take a little teaser. So basically, 25 years ago, Henley's best friend was murdered, and it was another serial killer who'd murdered um, some young women and a man. And a man was arrested and charged with his murder, and then found guilty. Ooh. 25 years later, he has a successful appeal. <gasps> against his convictions and he's released from prison but then he's killed and the murders start again so he may have been correct when he said he wasn't the person who committed the murders 25 years ago a cold case full conviction oh my god yes (laughs) it's a cold case come back alive i love listeners you heard it here first thank you nabeen (laughs) (laughs) what about you kia what are your plans for the future so this year it's all about those people next door promoting that but i also have a deadline in september for the Mm. next book which i can't say too much about mainly because (laughs) i haven't even plotted it yet um but it's on its way and if my editor's listening don't worry i will hit my deadline (laughs) good we love that. that's wonderful i hope you enjoy the press tour and get out there and promote i love that i feel like authors get to enjoy once you finish writing which is such a solitary thing which is like you're doing it by yourself and then Mm. you get to share it with the world i hope you enjoy the year everybody out there whoever's listening those people next door comes out on the is it the 11th on the 19th because i've got two dates 19th of january 19th yes uh please get out there and the binding room paperback is already out on the 5th you can order it right away we're gonna include the links in our description below you can order it from bookshop.org because what do we do here we support local bookshops yes nadine and kia thank you thank you so much for coming on board i hope you had just as a great time as we did thank you for opening the first episode of our new season thank you so much for having us we did thank you thank you it was a pleasure (laughs) and as always thank you so much for listening and we would like to remind you that please you can subscribe and like and share 
and do all those beautiful things and write gorgeous reviews because they really, really help. And uh, we like the ego bats. And all the publicists and authors out there, if you'd love to come on to a podcast, our details are given in the description below. Please message us, email us, or hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to have you on our show. And a massive thank you to all our listeners out there. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. See you next time. Doodles.